Amen. Thank you for your good reading. We trust that God will bless as we've read His Word publicly. Let's ask the Lord for His help tonight as we come to the Word of God. Our Father in Heaven, we read here in this portion of Exodus that the Lord passed by. He proclaimed His name. Moses saw something of the glory of God. And Lord, we would ask tonight that Thou wouldst in Thy mercy pass by. Even just pass by. So that we can see something of the God who is abundant in goodness and truth. Merciful and gracious and long-suffering. Father, help those that hear. Lord, we pray. We pray that you keep your people from distraction. Keep them from not receiving the word in faith. Help the preacher to not preach himself, but Christ. We need thee desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, those of you who have been here over the past number of Sunday evenings will be aware that we have been looking at the attributes of God. And over the past couple of weeks, we've specifically been thinking about the goodness of God. The goodness of God. And we noted that the Shorter Catechism, when asking the question, what is God, answers, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that is a wonderful description. There could really be no definition. If you think of defining something as, as putting it within parameters, but a description of what and who God is. But you'll notice as we've noted, that there's no word for the love of God. There's no trace of the love of God, the mercy of God, the benevolence of God, the graciousness of God, the long-suffering of God. Because all of those are subsumed under the head, the goodness of God. The goodness of God is the umbrella under which those things are viewed by the divines who wrote the Shorter Catechism. Now, I'm going to agree with a theologian named Robert Raymond who felt that although this is a good statement, that it might, might actually be better to actually include the love of God, the mercy of God, the graciousness of God, and the long-suffering of God, to name a few, instead of simply subsuming them all underneath the goodness of God. Because the Shorter Catechism is meant for children. That's the purpose of the Shorter Catechism. Don't feel bad because we look at it in Sunday school. But its purpose is for children. Now when children memorize this, and they memorize it as it is here, hearing the word goodness, is every child going to have emblazoned on their minds that this God is loving, merciful, gracious, kind, benevolent? Are they going to grasp that by simply the word goodness? And whether we agree that they would or they wouldn't, I definitely agree with Mr. Raymond that it is very important for us as we train our children and as we 
describe who God is as we go through the attributes of God, that we take time to look at what it means that God is good, lest we have a, a lopsided view of God, lest we misunderstand His person because we don't take the time to open up what is meant by the goodness of God. So, in these Sunday evenings, we have looked at the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. And tonight, we come to the long-suffering of God, which will be our last attribute as we consider it under the heading of the goodness of God. The long-suffering of God. Moses spoke of the long-suffering of God in the passage that we just read, didn't he? And the Lord passed by in verse 6 before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. David refers to this attribute of God in Psalm 86, verse 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. Joel spoke of it. Joel 2, verse 13. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repents Him of the evil. Nahum spoke of this. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. God is jealous. The Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries. He reserveth wrath for His enemies. But the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He's slow to anger. Paul speaks about it. Romans 2. Verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his, God's, goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? He even includes long-suffering as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, doesn't he? When he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, And certainly the inference is, if long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit, then it is definitely a characteristic of the Spirit. And if a characteristic of the Spirit, a characteristic of God, of all members of the Trinity. And so God is shown throughout the Scriptures to have this attribute of long-suffering or slow to anger. And what does this mean that... God is long-suffering. Well, the Hebrew words used to translate, uh, that are translated, excuse me, long-suffering or slow to anger or wrath, it's two different words, and they really have the meaning long-nosed. This is the literal meaning. God has a long nose. I think, well, that's very strange. Why would the Hebrews say God has a long nose? Well, it's a common picture in the Old Testament um, when someone is spoken of as being angry, they're burning in their nose. Their nose is flared and they're burning. The nose being that feature that most um, clearly manifests the feeling of the individual. So when your nose is flared, 
and you're breathing like this, it's clear you're angry. And so when the scripture says God has a long nose, what it's saying is, is it takes God a long time to get angry. It takes God a long time to become infuriated. It takes God a long time to pour out His judgment. He is long-nosed in that sense. And of course, when we translate it long-suffering, that's what that means. In that day and age, probably the, the thought of long-nosed had fallen out of, of, of meaning in the sense that any time you said long-nosed, everybody knew long-suffering. The Greek words used in the New Testament, Greek word translated long-suffering, it's made up of two different words, one meaning long and one meaning tempered, so that it has the idea of having a long fuse, long-tempered. You can stretch out the temper of God. He has a long fuse. He's not quick to being upset. He's not quick to being angry. He, doesn't, he wouldn't say, I have a quick temper. He has a slow temper. He's long-tempered. So when you put these things together, these, this understanding of God being slow to anger, slow to exact judgment... What does all of this mean? Well, it tells us a number of things. There must be something going on that makes God upset. There must be something going on that makes God upset, to which He responds with a slowness of anger. So what is going on that upsets Him? to where he responds slowly in anger. Well, in the first place, I want you to see that men continue in their sin, unrepentant and unjudged. Men continue in their sin, unrepentant and unjudged. We all know the text that says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But isn't it also true that all sin and come short of the glory of God. Not merely have and the sense of something has happened in the past, but they continue to sin against God. They continue to rebel against God. They continue to break His laws. They continue to live on His earth. Partake of the goodness that He gives them, completely undeserving of it, and yet live in utter rebellion to the God of grace. This happens every single day across our world. It's amazing to think of the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God with respect to His knowledge of sin, isn't it? That the things that are going on in some back room, in some city in America, most atrocious thing that's happening, God is fully Aware. He knows what's happening. In every home, in every city, all over the world, every sin that is being committed is open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. 
It's before His face. He takes a full, complete look at all of the evil that is being perpetuated in the earth. He's completely aware of it. And yet men go on, don't they? Unrepentant and unjudged. For thousands of years, the world has continued to live in rebellion against God. And yet we're all still here, aren't we? There are many of us that have lived or had lived for decades, perhaps, unrepentant, and yet we're unjudged. It's amazing, isn't it? When God looks at humanity in Psalm 14, He describes it this way, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. This is His conclusion. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not one. As He looks down on the earth, the Lord says, Not one individual outside of my people. Not one individual is doing anything good in my sight. And even God's people can do nothing pleasing to God outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even all of our works are tainted with sin. They, they still are full of the dross and impurity of our, of our indwelling sin. And yet the Lord looks at all of that. Genesis 6.5, do you remember the awful description of the nature of the heart of humanity? That the imagination of the thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. Only evil continually. Because they're in bondage to sin. They serve themselves. They have no love for God. They see no beauty in Jesus Christ. Though there might be a desire to do moral things because they produce something good or because they're seen to be good in and of themselves, nobody who is lost does anything good because they love God and they desire to glorify God. I've used the example a number of times in this pulpit, and I'll use it again because... It's, it's so clear. You remember the demon, right, that came to Jesus. And he was bowing before him and he was saying, Oh, thou son of the Most High. He had a right doctrinal view of Jesus. You're the son of the Most High. He had the right um, response to Jesus. He, he, at least with his mouth, praised him. He was prostrate. He bowed before him. And yet, he did not love him. And every individual does not, who is not in Christ does not love Christ. And God looks down on a world that is full of God-haters. And people that are living every day, lying, committing adultery, looking on computer screens at things that are atrocious, getting drunk, doing drugs, abusing other human beings, cursing one another, cursing God, division within families, hatred in hearts. 
beyond description is the evil in this world. And God looks at all of it. And yet they continue unrepentant and unjudged. And even you believers sometimes, don't you, continue unrepentant. Think of David with Bathsheba. He went for months without repenting. And yet he continued unjudged. Second thing we want to see as we think about long-suffering. There must be something that infuriates God. Men continue in their sin and repent and unjudged. That's what it is. Two, I want to establish the point. God is deeply displeased with their sin. God is deeply displeased with their sin. There are a number of descriptions in Scripture of God's reaction to sin and how God used the word feels when He looks at a world of sin. Now, God is a spirit, and as a spirit, He does not have a physicality to Him. So He doesn't have emotions in the same way that a man would because He doesn't feel them physically. But He certainly has an emotional life as He is a spirit. Spirit has a mind and emotion and a will. And when the Bible talks about God rejoicing or God delighting, we have to be careful to understand that although not like a man would, He does. And how does God then feel when He looks at this world of sin? How does He respond when He looks at all of this ungodliness, this wickedness, and this unrighteousness? Well, I see five responses in Scripture that God has to sin. Number one, grief. In Ephesians 4.30, we read, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Grief is a tender word, isn't it? It's a warm word. It speaks of sadness, of sorrow, of pain. Grief. When God looks down at His own children, and He sees them sinning against Him, He feels grief. He experiences a grief. When He looks at the world that He has created in His image, filled with goodness, filled with glory, filled with all of the good things He's given. And He sees them treating everything He's done as if it was nothing. Not thankful, as Romans 1 says, neither were they thankful, nor glorified God. For they worshiped the creature more than the Creator. They became foolish. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And when God looks down on that, He's grieved. He's grieved. Second, He's provoked. Psalm 78, verse 40, How oft did they provoke Him, the children of Israel, in the wilderness and grieve Him in the desert? What is it to be provoked? To be provoked. It's to be made it's to be made to feel uncomfortable, isn't it? You've been provoked. Maybe you have a little sister older brother, and they've provoked you. You think of the New Testament text, provoke not fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't try to pull wrath out of them. Don't try to make them wrathful. When God looks at sin, it's provoking Him. It's saying, judge this. Deal with this. It's provoking Him. It's 
It's making him want to judge. It's making him want to deal with sin. It's provoking God. Third, hatred. Zechariah 8.17 And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath for all these things that I hate, saith the Lord. Hatred. This word can be translated counting someone as an enemy. Everything about God is an enemy of evil. Evil is an utter offense to everything that he is. Evil is by nature against God. He hates evil. And you know that the more goodness somebody has, the more hatred they have for evil. You know that if you love what is right, if you love, let me put it this way, something contemporary to our culture, if you love infants, don't you hate abortion? Doesn't it make you sick that some man would say it's perfectly moral to kill, to murder an unborn child? Is it, don't you have hatred for that? And imagine how, in what comparison, our goodness can be compared to God's. Our hatred can be compared to God's. He hates sin. He hates evil. And his hatred even extends to those who practice it. Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6 It says that the Lord hates all workers of iniquity. Now again, He doesn't hate them in the sense that He's like some um, out-of-control, angry human being who can't wait to just kill somebody. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. It's that God is holy. God is good. And everything about Him is against sin, is against evil. He will judge it. He will destroy it. God hates sin for abhorrence. Psalm 5, verse 6, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. You know what it means to abhor? It means to detest. It means to loathe. It means to look at as abominable. Evil is an offense to the holiness of God. It's an offense to His purity. It's an offense to his shining perfection. In the same way that you might look at vomit and feel your stomach turn in detestation, loathing it, God looks at evil. And he loathes what he sees. It's an abomination to him. He hates its very presence. He wants, doesn't want to even look at it. doesn't want it to be near Him. He wants it away. And that's why in the new heavens and the new earth, there is nothing of any kind of impurity allowed in. Because God loathes it. More deeply than you and I can ever understand. And finally, in fifth, anger. There are many texts of Scripture I could bring out. And I think you all know, sin arouses the anger of God. 
it arouses his justice. He knows the kind of things that human beings have done one to another, and they must be punished. They must be judged. He knows the sins that have been committed against himself. They must be punished. They must be judged. Or he would be an unjust God. He would be an unrighteous God. How could he not judge sin and be a righteous God? How could he let sin pass without, just, without justice, without a just recompense for what's happened and him be a just and a holy and a righteous God? Nobody would disagree. They want Hitler to face judgment. We all want Hitlers to do it. We all want Kim Jongs to face judgment. But what about you? Now for those of us who know Christ, our judgment has fallen on the Son. But all outside of Him, God's no respecter of persons. He will judge each man according to their deeds. It moves Him to anger. And so God, He beholds humanity. And all of their sinfulness, all their depravity, and all their wickedness, and all their moral evil. And he is moved with grief. He's provoked. He feels hatred. He's abhorred. And he feels anger stirring within him. And yet, he does not judge them. Now, yes, he may judge some in time. But I'm speaking of the general, of the final judgment. He does not bring his final judgment. He allows them to continue in their sin. We see that God is slow to act in anger and judgment towards sin, don't we? I, I think of when God looked down in the days of Noah at the flood, before the flood, excuse me. He looked down on a world of people that were completely Reprobate, didn't he? I mean, nobody followed Noah. Noah and his family were the only ones. He said, Noah, you preach, you build, and you warn these people. Judgment's coming. But he gave them space, didn't he, to repent? He did not say, today it's come. Pharaoh. Here's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is treating the people of God, the apple of his eye, the treasure of Jehovah, in a most incredible way. He is keeping them as slaves, isn't he? Do you remember that? He's making them take bricks and build things in the heat of the sun. They're sweating. They're crying out for mercy from God. He sends Moses. And how many plagues does God bring through Moses? Every time Pharaoh let my people go, no. Does he bring judgment? No. Another plague, Pharaoh let my people go. Does he bring judgment? No. Another plague, Pharaoh let my people go. He says tomorrow, does he bring judgment? No. Pharaoh let my people go. And even the last plague, he took the life of Pharaoh's son, but he didn't take Pharaoh's life. It wasn't until Pharaoh chased after the people of God like a bloodthirsty maniac. He ran into the wrath of God. And finally, God took his life. What an example of long-suffering. Israel, amazing testimony of the long-suffering of God. 
You think of them as they are going to Sinai and they're complaining of how they don't have food, they don't have anything to eat, or they don't have anything to drink. They're saying, would to God we would have died back in Egypt instead of following you out here. And yet he continues to shepherd them. At Sinai, what do they do? They make a golden calf and they worship God in the person of an idol. They think they are. Does God judge them? No. I mean, He brings judgment, but He doesn't wipe them off the face of the earth. He continues to be faithful to His covenant people. He continues to shepherd His people. Think of at, when they came to, to Canaan. They didn't believe in the Lord, did they? They didn't believe His promises. They couldn't go into the land, and so they wandered for 40 years. And even though, yes, that generation died, Israel still was not wiped off the face of the planet. Think of all that Israel, all they had done to provoke God. He never cast them away. It's amazing. And a God of long suffering. He said in Hosea about his people, And my people are bent to backsliding from me, though they called them to the Most High. None at all would exalt him. How shall I give you up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboam? Mine heart is turned within me. This is God speaking. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. And even now, we are his Israel. Spiritual Israel. He has never forsaken his people. And the cross is an amazing display of the long-suffering of God. You think about how Jesus comes in His whole life, His incarnation, His birth, His, his ministry. All of it is an incredible display of the long-suffering of God. As men in the face of the incarnate God blaspheme Him, call His work the work of Satan. But what about the cross itself? As Men are spitting on the face of Jesus in Pilate's hall. And God does not move in judgment. As they put Him on a cross and they strip Him naked and blood is flowing from His head and His hands and His side. And yet, there is no swift and eternal judgment from the Father. What long-suffering. And you think about how God is grieved with sin. Well, how much more grieved would He be with the greatest sin that has ever been performed in history. The Father looks down as men kill, crucify the Son of God, and the people of Israel reject their Lord. The same Lord that had been with them, gracious and long-suffering through all their history, comes to them incarnate, tabernacling with them, and they have nothing, want to have nothing to do with him, and they kill him. And yet Jehovah remains gracious, doesn't he? He remains long-suffering. And I know you've seen this in your own life. Many of you were saved after years of sin. And God could have very easily have taken your life and yet he didn't. He could have very easily allowed you to slip out into eternity, and yet he didn't. 
What a gracious God. Maybe there's someone here tonight who doesn't know the Lord. He has not yet judged you. He has not yet let you go. And you remain unrepentant in your stubbornness. And yet he has not judged you. If you want proof that God is willing to save, that's proof. And then we need to ask the question, why is God like this? Why is he so slow to anger? Why doesn't he just pour out his judgment now? Well, somebody might say he doesn't care. We've already shown that's not possible. It can't be because he doesn't care. It can't be because sin is just not a big deal to him. He really cares. He really hates it. He really abhors it. And he really feels pity and compassion for those who are being mistreated, for those who are being treated poorly in the world. He really does care. He's a God of tender mercy and compassion. Nobody cares more about the oppressed than God. Nobody feels more sympathy with them than God. People that are being oppressed in Muslim nations, nobody feels more pity for them than God. Just because God hasn't moved in judgment doesn't mean He doesn't care. He, maybe He isn't able to. Maybe His hands are tied. He can't do it. Well, that's certainly not the case, is it? God's omnipotent. If He's omnipotent, that means He's able to do all things that are in accord with His nature. He's certainly able. So I've heard some people say, He's just fattening people up for the kill. That's what He's doing. He's letting people live in sin so that He can just fatten them up for the kill. So that He can just bring swifter judgment on them. That's a wrong view of God. That is never, ever the end of the long-suffering of God in Scripture. Long-suffering is always paired with mercy, graciousness, goodness. It's an attribute of His tender love. So why does He do this? It's because He is love, and in love He pities sinners and takes no pleasure in their destruction. And I want us to understand this. God pities sinners and takes no pleasure in their destruction. No pleasure in their destruction. We talked about the wrath of God. We need to understand lest we severely misrepresent our God. That although we speak of wrath, we're talking about a God in, whose, in whom all of His attributes are harmonious. And so this wrathful God is loving in that wrath even, and pitying in that wrath, and compassionate as He pours out that wrath. This is our God. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, we find, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And the way some, maybe some Reformed preachers preach, it might sound like he has pleasure. And the Bible says, He does not. Ezekiel 33, 11, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure. In the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Another text, Lamentations 3, verse 33. 
For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. That word, willingly from the heart. He does not afflict from the heart, nor grieve the children of men. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of sinners who turn away from him in, in rebellion. He takes no pleasure in that. He doesn't do it from the heart. He takes no joy in consigning people to hell. You say, but, but it's judgment. Doesn't he take joy in that? He takes joy in the fact that justice is being meted out. And that's in accord with his righteous nature. But in the destruction of the wicked themselves, he takes no pleasure. In the fact that an image bearer of God will be damned for eternity, he takes no pleasure. He does not afflict them willingly. He wasn't excited and couldn't wait to pour out his wrath on Pharaoh. He didn't do it willingly. He didn't afflict him willingly. Matthew Henry comments on this text, He does not afflict with pleasure. He delights not in the death of sinners or the disquiet of saints, but punishes with a kind of reluctance. He comes out of his place to punish, for his place is the mercy seat. His place is the mercy seat. He's a reluctant judge. He doesn't want to do this in the sense that he has no pleasure in their death. He's reluctant to pour out judgment. He's reluctant to pour out His wrath. And yet, He will one day pour out His wrath. There is an end to the long-suffering of God. There is an end to it. He will give so many opportunities, so many hours, so many days, so many moments. But there is an end to that long-suffering. His nose is long. It's not infinite. His long-suffering towards sinners has an end. And He will pour out His wrath when the final day comes. Isaiah 28 verse 21 actually calls wrath His strange work. For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that He may do His work, His strange work, bring to pass His act, His strange act. The word strange meaning foreign. Wrath is not the most agreeable thing to the nature of God. He delights in being merciful. He delights in being gracious. He delights in being pitiful. He delights in being compassionate. He delights in being tender. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's not desirous that one individual would be lost he wants all to be saved. And we need to be very careful with our view of God. One Reformed theologian spoke of what he called, and I quote him, a grave misunderstanding that has been perpetuated in the church. He says it has been said that the saints one day will rejoice in the torment of the wicked in hell. And he says that that has given a, a terrible view of God. It's not that the saints rejoice in the torment. They rejoice in the fact that judgment has happened, that justice is happening. But they have no delight in the death and the damnation of the wicked. 
And he makes the point, if your God delights in the damnation of the wicked, where, tell me where you get a burden for souls. Where will you get a burden for souls? If your God looks at this world of lost sinners and says, hey, I don't care about one of them. I can't wait to judge them, to destroy them. All I've done is create them just to demonstrate my wrath. You have a very wrong view of God. A very wrong view. God created men for His glory. He created men to know Him. They rebelled against God out of the lump of a fallen world. Romans 9 talks about God making vessels unto glory and vessels unto wrath. He has allowed those in sin to go their own way. He has passed them over. But He's not created them for that end. If you have a God who delights in the damnation and the torment of souls and hell under the wrath of God, if you do not have a God who is profoundly burdened, if I may use that word carefully, for sinners, how can you have a burden for souls? How can the Spirit of God cultivate in you a burden for lost and dying sinners if the Spirit of God has no burden, if the Spirit of God has no pity, no compassion for souls? We must be very careful about our view of God and understand that when we talk about God, it shape, what we think about God shapes who we are. A man wrote a book recently, I don't know how recent, but it was called The God-Shaped Mind, talking about how people, individuals, are shaped by what they believe about God. The most profound thing about you is what you believe about God. And one of the wonderful things about preaching it's not simply that every time someone comes to hear the Word, we just hear what we already believe. But sometimes we hear things that make us think. And we have to wonder, was I read about this? And I ask you, is your God a tender God? Is your God the God who could weep over sinners? Is that your God? That's the God of the Bible. The God who would weep over sinners. He did in the person of His Son as He became a man. And the more God-like you become, the more God-like you become, the more God-like I become, the more profoundly moved you and I will be at the plight of lost and dying sinners. It is not God-like. It is not God-like. It is not Christ-like. To pass by a dying, broken sinner condemned to hell and say, good for them. That's what they deserve. Let them go to hell. That is not like God. That is not like Him at all. He extends His mercy, His long-suffering because He's a reluctant judge who delights in mercy. Not in judgment. I plead with you tonight, if anybody does not know the Lord, His arms are outstretched in mercy. Don't despise His long-suffering. Don't despise His continual goodness to you. 
you can come to Christ now because you're alive. You're not judged. You're not dead. You're not in hell. You can come to Jesus now. I think one of the most destructive things is when somebody gets into their minds, I have to wait for God to open my eyes. I have to wait for God to regenerate me. That is absolutely not the consideration. The apostles never, ever, ever, if you read their Acts, preach that way. They just said, here's Jesus. You come to Jesus right now. If you don't come to Jesus, it's because of your own rebellion. Come to Him right now. Just come. Believe on Him. Just trust Him. Take Him as your own. He's long-suffering. He extends His hands in mercy. We bless God for who He is. Trust God will help us to have right views of God. None of these things can exhaust who He is. But we stand back in wonder, love, and praise. Let's thank the Lord for His long-suffering. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy great mercy. We thank Thee for Thy long-suffering. We thank You, Lord, that You are always the Father looking out the window of your home, waiting for the prodigal to come home. Oh, make us godlike. Oh, Lord, give us a broken heart for souls. Lord, we repent. We repent of our coldness towards souls. We repent of wrong views of God. We repent of not being sensitive to the plight of lost people. And we ask you, Lord, to make us more like you. We ask you, Lord, to give us tender hearts. Give us hearts like Jesus, who weep over Jerusalems that are departed from their God. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. And bless thy people tonight. Bless the prayer meeting, Lord. Bless the, the ladies as they pray. Meet with them. Help them. Strengthen them. Help them in their prayers. Help them to pray in the Holy Ghost. Give them great grace. For Jesus' sake. Amen.